My guest is Sunda Katwala. Sunda Katwala is the director of the think tank British Future and his book, How to Be a Patriot, Why Love of Country Can End Our Very British Culture War, has just been published. Welcome to the podcast, Sunda. Great to be here, Paul. Right, before we talk about your book, just a few words, please, for our listeners about what British Future is and how long it's been around and why it was set up, please. British Future is a charity and think tank dealing with issues of identity and um, we founded it in 2012 and it would like Britain to be confident, welcoming, inclusive and fair. So everyone's going to agree with that but I was worried that we had these big identity divides in our society and that people who were maybe liberal in favour of diversity and migration weren't very good at understanding why other people weren't. So it's an attempt to build common ground on issues that could divide us. And at first sight, writing a book with Patriot in the title is patriotism often is seen as, at best, a kind of quaint concept, at worst, a, a source of a lot of tension and even violence in society. So what was the inspiration for the book? It's a very personal book. I mean, it's about, it's about me and my country. And before I was, you know, before I was running think tanks or in journalism, you know, I was a, I was a kid growing up, you know, an Indian dad, Irish mother, sort of mixed race, Irish Catholic, um, Evertonian. And, you know, I didn't know that was complicated till I hit my teenage years. And you realise that the whole history of Britain, Ireland, India, empire, race is quite complicated. People have got views about it. And I'm, I'm confident about my country by experience of realising when I was 14 that, you know, some people had questions about that. But if that's who you are, that's something you can put things together. But what helped was these conversations were going my way in the 1990s. You know, 96, football's coming in, that was a much better Englishness than the one we'd seen, you know, football hooganism before. Britpop I quite liked. Um, The culture and politics of John Major and then New Labour, this country was becoming more inclusive. But this century's been a bit choppier. Right. For me, so I'm trying to. I'm not asking, has Britain got a place for people like me who are mixed race and Indian Irish and so on? Because I thought I, I worked out it had. Why is everyone else at loggerheads about about right. identity, Brexit, race, immigration, everything else? So, how how do we put this back together? That's that's the kind of state of the nation question. But it comes from a place of thinking identity matters because I grew up with identity questions to think about. Right. Well, I warn you in advance, I've been quoting a lot of your words back at you. Um, the first of which is, you say at the beginning of the book, uh, quote, we will see again this year that Britain may well be the most tradition of liberal democracies, certainly when it comes to the ceremonies of our great occasions, such as the funerals and coronations of monarchs. Yet we are also much the most liberal of traditional societies, almost certainly among the most liberal of societies that has ever existed. That's quite a bold assertion. Why do you say that in such sort of dramatic terms? I think if you are, if you're mixed race or from an ethnic minority background, if you are... Um, gay if you are a woman that wants as much chance to achieve your potential in life and work as as a man where would you where would you choose i'm not i'm not saying britain is the only one of these countries but where would you choose that wasn't one of the advanced western liberal democracies of this of this generation i'm sure there are things where we might have gone backwards if you're very worried about sustainable limits on the planet or something you might say we've taken a wrong turn if you're interested in the autonomy to be yourself then i think britain in the 2020s and other western democracies are better than than they were at any previous point in history. Right. This is not a book about Brexit, I should warn the readers, um, but there are references to Brexit throughout, because you talk a lot of, obviously about immigration and the, and the uh, prevalence of immigration in the Brexit referendum seven years ago now. But another quote back at you, uh, where 
in many ways, uh, those who were open to immigration but wanted to be more selective about who came in and why got what they wanted. And this is the crucial point. You say, but control changed the immigration debate in another crucial way. More control meant more responsibility for the choices that were made. And this directly led to a broader public awareness that these were complex and nuanced questions. I can go on, but you want to say control highlighted, again, continuing the quote, Control highlighted that people think rather differently for, about different kinds of immigration. Most people who wanted control turned out to be selective and pragmatic about when to use it. Maybe at the time that wasn't quite so obvious, but in the intervening seven years that's become much more clear. Yes, I mean, we've got very high immigration right now. We've actually got record immigration this year. And that, that, that is the, they, those are the dilemmas of control, but they're not just dilemmas for Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, or Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister. They're dilemmas for the voter who might say, next 600,000 sounds really high. It does sound really high. It is really high. But we all wanted to play our bit in the Ukraine crisis, or that's 200,000 more that we all wanted. People had to get their refugees in through the Home Office. But also, you know, yes or no to students, yes or no for visas the NHS, yes or no for social care, and it turns out there's a controlled, pragmatic openness. The answer seems to be almost always yes. There's a bit more scepticism about bankers than about care yeah. workers, but <laughs> yeah, in the right. end, the bankers will still pay their tax, so <laughs> you'll let some in. Um, and that's interesting because the, the choices people want to make add up to more than the number they might have thought of. You know, what happens when people realise that? Do they think, well, OK, I'd better let go some students, some doctors, some nurses, yeah. some fruit pickers, or do they say I'll do it? That, that's the dilemma of control. But free movement was a yes or no question, and it's also what about free movement there in the rest of the world. Commonwealth migration sounded like a yes or no yeah. question, but actually immigration, if you've got control, is about who do you want to choose? And, you know, we talk a lot in Britain about the Australians have got, uh, you know, got a sense of control. Australia takes a lot of immigration. Canada takes a lot of immigration because you choose to have it. Yeah. Does that mean if there were to be a referendum today, seven years after the original one, that the, not just the salience of immigration, which would be much, be much lower, but more importantly, maybe that the, the British electorate would actually see immigration as a, as a plus, not as a, a minus? It's possible, but there's a difficulty. I think in the referendum we had, the case for free movement was, well, if we want to be in this club, and this club's good for other reasons, and think about the economics and think about the influence, then free movement's one of the club rules. And, you know, take the package or don't take the package. And that would still be a relatively hard thing to do because the underlying principle of European free movement in particular, as opposed to being pro-immigration, is Europeans should prefer Europeans in our immigration system because we're all Europeans and citizens of Europe. Well, the British were just less European, even when they were pro the European Union, they were they were in it for some more pragmatic reasons. And it feels a bit awkward to prefer, you know, Poles have got a long history with this country, but Poles, Indians, Australians have all got a history with this country. So freedom of movement is, you know, it, it's just one of the rules of the club. But it, it's not, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be pro-migration's people's first preference for an immigration policy. So you also say about Brexit, we will, we will move on from Brexit in a minute, I promise. Um, you say, quote, it would be difficult to underestimate the indifference of most ethnic minority Britons to the European argument that had raged for over four decades in British politics. But perhaps the indifference was reciprocal. Neither the pro-European nor the Eurosceptic political tribes had ever shown much positive interest in non-white Britain. Please ex- amplify it. Well, I've been to a lot of 
pro-European events, you know, running the Fabian Society and so on over 20 years. Other people have been going for 40 years. And it's nothing, it's not especially true of the pro-European movement only. But if you went to events on constitutional reform and electoral reform or, you know, environmentalism and so on, there are a lot of middle-class progressive events that are very white yes. and that don't reflect the diversity of Britain. Not that the people in the room wouldn't like to. If you walked into a room and you're young, black and Asian, they would be, they would be on you like a rash to say, so glad you've turned up. You know? yeah, right. Can you bring can any of your friends come? But but just at a distance. But this this point surprised pro-Europeans in early 2016 when they're starting on that campaign. And there was a black and Asian voters, you know, maybe habitually Labour Party voters thinking about that, just didn't know what this argument and was about. And they assumed about. that an ethnic minority Britain would be just automatically much more pro-European. So they were, well, they were saying, it wasn't that they'd be pro-European, but they were thinking, if you've seen who's on the other side, they used to have Enoch Powell, oh, right. now they've got Nigel Farage, so obviously you'll be with us, yeah. won't you? And then the question was, well, what is this? And, you know, are you in favour of it? And, you know, is it worth the money? European free movement, but not the Commonwealth. What's that about? And then, but a, a real distance from that. And what, what's interesting then in the, in the data, people end up, Asians, black people, end up voting pro-Europe more than anybody else from a position of agnosticism and nobody's really asked us about it. Partly because the, the leave hostility, you know, Farage, what, who is he really worried about yeah. coming in, was bigger than the Remain distance but the remain distance was profound and so the turnout rate was very very low and for white british people who are very keen to get out or very keen to stay in this was clearly bigger than a general election for black and asian voters it was a slightly lower stakes event than every right. four years electing the government right well let's move on then to actually the monarchy i mean it's not very often you read books these days which which gives quite a quite an important section to the monarchy and you talk about you you, you quote george orwell uh, in the lion and the unicorn saying this is orwell now not you uh, it is a strange fact but it's unquestionably true that almost any english intellectual will be more ashamed of being caught standing to attention during god save the king than of stealing from a poor box and you go on to say in other parts of the book that you see quite a, a distinct and an important role for King Charles III now in a, in a kind of unifying force. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but could you maybe also explain in more detail why you, you put so much faith in the multi-faith monarch we have now in, in Britain? Yes, I mean, I mean, I love that Orwell essay when I read it. It's about identity and the left and so on. But on the monarchy, he had me, because that, that would have been one of those people being like, like, I look at my shoes and so on. It was obvious to me as a sort of 16-year-old and 18-year-old, a young adult, that like that you shouldn't, have the hereditary head of the state. And then I changed my mind slowly on this, realising in the end, it, you know, did it matter that much and were there other things to worry about? But I've changed my mind again in these very divided, polarised times. I'm very clear that we're less divided than America and we need to mm. not go in the same direction. And we need some institutions that aren't doing what the political parties are doing. Sometimes they're reaching out, sometimes they're just talking to people who already agree with them. We need, we need some bridging institutions. And the monarchy is going to have to be one of them because although it doesn't have to stand for election, it, it sort of does mm. as well. And 60% of people want it, 65% yeah. of people want it. If that ever drifts down to 50, that won't work. So they don't want to just lean into the people who already like them. If you're you know, older white person in the south of England who votes Tory, you'll love the monarchy. They've got challenges, Scotland, Wales, young people generally, ethnic minorities in particular, younger minorities. And I think they can do some work on, on bridging and reaching out. It's all symbolic because it's, it's a symbolic decorative thing. But when the king who's you know, very in favour of multiculturalism, which he understands very much as a multi-faith, 
yeah. Britain. He's fascinated by that. That's a big symbolic importance, mm, yeah. I think, about how you give that recognition. You've got to act on it. You know, you can't just have good relations if the king invites you all round to say a prayer together. You've got we to saw, be working we saw, on we it. We saw he joined the coronation, of course. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah, it's very, very important to him. And it was a, it was a real balancing act as well. He, his instinct's probably a bit more radical. Yeah. You know, Thirty years ago, he's talking about defender of faith, and then you know, the Anglican Church saying, "We are the established church. We've been here a thousand years, and we'll crown we'll we'll crown you." And you know, it's us really, but everyone's invited to the party. So it's not it's yeah. not an offer of equality. We've got an established church in a very secular country, but it's an it's an offer of recognition, respect, more inclu- more inclusive, value, yeah. inclusion, yeah. and that's still you know. 75 years into this multi-faith, multicultural Britain, that, that recognition coming from the very apex of society matters. And people of minority faiths, therefore, I think are a bit less likely to say, oh, sweep it all away, what's the silliness of an established church, than, you know, the secular, agnostic, uh, atheistic British. Let's move on then to, to racism. We're, we're darting around the books. We can't do it all justice, unfortunately, in 25 minutes. Racism, you, and what you call online dynamics, uh, social media. You say new... Online dynamics, another Sunder quote, create a paradox of racism. There are fewer racists in our society than there were 25 years ago due to shifting social norms across generations. Yet I, Sunder, received much more racist abuse in the 2020s than I did in the 1990s. Technology reduced the distance between us, so any ethnic minority figure with any public profile, that includes you presumably, is one click away from some of the worst bigots. I mean, what kind of abuse have you, do you receive these days? So I'm not, you know, I'm not Sadiq Khan, the Mayor of London, or Hamza Yusuf, the First Minister of Scotland, or Diane Abbott. So there are there people with a bigger profile than me where this is just, you know, if they go online in the way that, you know, other mayors of London, other MPs would, it's just, it's incessant if you click on any of their tweets. I mean, I, yeah, I'm mildly addicted to Twitter in a way I could <laughs> try and do something about, but my experience is mostly positive most of the time. You can, if you go around trying to be reasonable on Twitter, you can get somewhere. But I think when I was being a bit optimistic once in the news about the fact that 90% of people don't think you have to be white to be English these days, and I was quoted in The Observer, I heard not from the 10%, but from the 1%, the 1% who really didn't want 90% of people to think that. And I was being targeted by extreme far-right groups like Britain First, but they they were sending swarms of people my way. And, you know, if we... The reason I'm optimistic about race is I was an Everton football supporter when I was 10 or 11 year old, so I saw the culture at its worst and I saw the culture change. It's a snapshot for me that drags me back 30 years in terms of the stuff that we took out of the stages yeah. is still coming my way in my pocket. And if, you know, if that isn't dealt with, then, then I haven't got equal status in my society, which I do insist on. But is there a line nonetheless between that, even if it's a dotted line between that racism amplified through social media and what you talk about the the culture wars you say in part of your book that we're in no immediate danger of the of britain becoming like the united states however that it's quite we could easily go down that path you say another sunday quote by far the most popular way to dial down the noise and reduce the heat of the culture wars is for other people who we don't agree with to stop spouting so much nonsense so the rest of us can get on with the, what most people of goodwill can surely agree seem seem fair and sensible. Uh, but you also go on to say that uh, a, a most likely scenario in Britain is the normalisation of increased conflict with a more gradual drift into increased cultural conflict. So how pessimistic are you about that, that Britain have, having its own kind of not so much US-style culture wars, but not culture wars nonetheless. I mean, I'm relatively confident, but I think I need to be more vigilant without being alarmist about the risk. So it's nothing like as intense as America. 
Right. And we've got some things here that America hasn't got. For example, yeah, most people still watch the BBC some of the time or ITV, and we have a regulated news agenda. In America, two different political tribes just watch everything that happens in two parallel universes in that the Fox News world and the CNN world are telling you entirely different stories about the world. You don't want to go that way. What we saw between 2016 and 2019 when Brexit was stuck, yeah. but also the Brexit divide was about everything else, who went to university and who didn't, and you know, who's, got, you know, who's younger and who's got a graduate job and so on. You just saw a chance that you might line up all of the issues. So in America, if you um, get the vaccine or wear a face mask on the train, I can kind of guess how you voted. And yeah. in Britain, I can't do that. So you want to preserve that. That means trying to have conversations with the more reasonable people who disagree with you and seeing what you can do about that. So while I want to take, you know, the absolutely hateful people who are you know, targeting me because they're members of extreme groups off social media um, in order that it's a decent place to be, I'm quite interested in the people who say, Sundra, I disagree with everything you say. It's gone completely mad. It's all gone wrong. No one listens to me. I'd like to say, OK, let's put the kettle on. Let's see whether <laughs> we can get anywhere with that yeah. with that question. And you often can, even with someone who comes at you with quite a lot of grievance. I get, I get people who say, you know, Sundra Katwala, director of British Future, tells you all you need to know, doesn't it? Which I say... But what does it tell you? Yeah. And half the time, someone says, I mean, no offence, but I mean, you know, I don't like that thing that, you know, Keir Starmer said the other day or something. And then, But they're immediately with the response, instead of me sort of slamming them, saying, do you want to make your point? Suddenly saying, oh, I mean, you know, sorry, I was offensive. You know, they, they know they've crossed the line. Right. And on this notion of what you call inclusive patriotism, you do make a point, you're impeccably uh, impartial. You talk about how people on the left and people on the right should should maybe change their own behaviour to to embrace some kind of normalisation of patriotism. Could you maybe, again, explain what you mean by that? Well, so for, for the right, and I think the British right is mostly in a good place most of the time because the Conservative Party is very successful because it's, it's not usually reactionary. It normally adapts with change once it happens. The right has to like the country we've become. If the right just massively prefers, you know, the Britain of 1900 or 1950s, the Britain of 2020, and doesn't like it, I mean, that, that's something you get at the sharp end of the populist fringes. You're not, you're not much of a patriot if you hate the country, you know, post about 1948. And the left just has this ambivalence and this anxiety and knows all of the traps and all of the difficulties of, you know, what might go wrong. How can identity be divided? And then some of the centre-left, actually, and the centrists say, oh, no one really cares about identity. Let's do it. All politics is identity. Yeah. Um, some of it we call identity politics and some of it we call other things. But having, a, having an inclusive politics of identity matters. So the left just needs to be a bit confident about the normalness of patchism. Patchism is quite low-key these days. It's not enormously tub-thumping. Yeah. Um, most of the time. The left needs to adapt to the normalness and the right needs the modern version. You don't want the right saying, oh, you know, can't really talk to anyone in London these days or Birmingham and Manchester, you know, we're retreating from the cities. So I want them both to keep reaching out to the places where it's difficult. Right. Let's finish off then, Sunda, because at the end of the book, you talk about a practical agenda to defuse the culture wars and you have a five-point plan, but by the Prime Minister, I think, here's time. Everybody has a five point plan these days, including you. Uh, I will prompt you, so you can briefly uh, go through each one as you list in, in the, at the end of the book. So point one in this, in this practical agenda to defuse cultural wars is, one, avoidance does not work. So what does that mean? So if, you know, if there's a very strong toxic debate and you don't even want to let me talk about it, saying, well, you know, let's talk about something else. I mean, let's get the gas bills down. This identity stuff is too difficult. And let's hope it goes away because it's not as divided as America. We're just leaving the field 
to the to the battlers and the polarizers. We've got to get into the field. It won't go away just by avoiding it. No. Right. Point two. Mind our language. We can turn down the temperature. Yes, I, I like having opponents, but not enemies. You know, culture war. It's about is it okay to shoot people? It's actually a sort of analogy to civil war, which is when the political process is broken down, you've got to get the guns out. So I'd like to take all of that traitors, enemies stuff out and take responsibility for our own tribes, you know, language about the people we disagree with. Right. Point three, value the institutions that we share, especially the BBC. Yes, I want there to be places where 20 million of us do the same thing and we still do it for the big royal occasions even though some people don't like the royal family and we do it for the Eurovision Song Concert we do it for women's football now as well as men's football that's got more inclusive and the BBC helps you do that or the pandemic or the war in Ukraine I mean other broadcasters too but I don't want I don't want everyone just getting the news from people who just agree with them and reinforce why they don't like other people and on the BBC as a side I noticed that was a really important point I hadn't thought about it's important that those out there with full of good intentions who want to save or protect or whatever the BBC from its detractors it should not become a tribal issue it's important that there's a kind of widespread uh, across the aisle as it were support for the BBC so it's not just seen like a progressive cause yeah I'd like I'd like conservatives to say you know essentially the BBC is worth having the BBC World Service is worth having if it's like progressives will save the BBC from the evil Tories then then we're, we're trying yeah. to turn the BBC into something you assume the evil Tories will then go yeah. and create their own channels and we'll we'll get we'll take that further step towards American polarization right Point four, get the boundaries right on free speech and hate speech. Yes, this is really difficult um, because um, both things are true. We can over-police trivia, um, uh, if, you know, accidental language or, you know, things in cartoons from 50 years ago, and we can under-police the kind of real extremism on the internet. I think, I think we've actually got quite good latent foundations on where the real boundaries are. But I can't say disagree well if you're disagreeing with somebody who you know has got genocidal intent <laughs> towards you but there are some debates race is one i think asylum is another i think gender and trans debates very much so are now where there's a real disagreement on where that boundary is so you've got to work really hard on what is the boundary of disagree well and what is the foundations of decency in a conversation of who needs you know, holocaust deniers out yeah. is an easy point it's harder with some of these newer debates because the nuanced, yeah. you know wanting to throw out people who say well i've got a view too is, is part of the game yeah and the last point take responsibility identify the roles that each of us can play in bridging divides and promoting meaningful dialogue yes i mean the government could do quite a lot and the political parties could definitely take out some of the stuff that's making it worse we've never had the integration strategy in this country although we're quite good at integration in the end so you know does everyone share a common language and how do we invest in that if you're an assigned seeker or refugee do we have mixed schools or segregated schools um, do we have place we meet or uh, meet and mix they're things national and local government can do but the culture and tone of how we talk to each other that's up to all of us you know if you're a remainer that's very very upset about Brexit and what happened and someone's a leaver who's very upset it took three years to leave you can just tell stories about each other and whenever you spot one you say I told you they were all mad stupid idiots or disrespectful elitists and so on or you can try and do the opposite it's quite hard to sort of nudge our way back into the sort of respect the views of other people it's what most of us want but if you get the sense the culture's got shoutier and angrier then people doing podcasts might think maybe I need a really shouty <laughs> podcast not a really nuanced one it just you just you just sort of start to shift the norm into into maybe maybe we're more maybe we're shoutier country than we than we wanted to be well we rattle through your book I hope you've left the listeners wanting more and then go out and buy how to be a patriot well we have to leave it there Sunda Katwala thank you very much for your time thanks Paul